0: CHAPTER Six, THE QUIET FIGURE ON THE HEATH The morning after the storm broke bright and clear, promising a hot summer's day, but also promising a pleasant breeze to counterbalance the heat of the sun. This was the legacy of the storm, which, dying out about three o'clock, after no purposeless fury, had left behind it a better and purer air. Mr. Joseph Peters, seated at breakfast this morning, "'attended by Cuppins, nursing the foundling, "'has a great deal to say by means of the dirty alphabet, "'greasy from the effects of bacon, about last night's storm. "'Cuppins has in no wise altered since we last saw her, "'and four months have made no change "'in the inscrutable physiognomy of the silent detective. "'But four months have made a difference in the foundling, "'now familiarly known as baby. "'Baby is short-coated,' "'Baby takes notice. "'This accomplishment of taking notice "'appears to consist chiefly "'in snatching at every article within its reach, "'from Cuppin's luxuriant locks "'to the hot bowl of Mr. Peter's pipe. "'Baby also is possessed of a marvellous pair of shoes, "'which are alternately in his mouth, "'under the fender, and upon his feet, "'to say nothing of their occasionally "'finding their way out of the window "'onto the dust-heap.' and into divers, other domestic recesses too numerous to mention. Baby is also possessed of a cap with frills, which it is Cuppin's delight to small plate, and the delight of Baby to demolish. Baby is devotedly attached to Cuppin's, and evinces his affection by such pleasing demonstrations as poking his fists down her throat, hanging on to her nose, pushing a tobacco pipe up her nostrils, "'and other equally gratifying proofs of infantine regard. "'Baby is, in short, a wonderful child, "'and the eye of Mr. Peters at breakfast "'wanders from his bacon and his watercresses "'to his young adopted, "'with a look of pride he does not attempt to conceal. "'Mr. Peters has risen in his profession since last February. "'He has assisted at the discovery of two or three robberies, and has evinced on those occasions such a degree of tact, triumphing so completely over the difficulties he labors under from his infirmity, as to have won for himself a better place in the police force of Sloperton, and, of course, a better salary. But business has been dull lately, and Mr. Joseph Peters, who is ambitious, has found no proper field for his abilities as yet. "'I should like an iron safe case,' "'a regular out-and-out burglary,' he muses, "'or a good forgery, say to the tune of a thousand or so, "'or a bit of bigamy, that would be something new. "'But a jolly good poisoning case might make my fortune. "'If that there little un was growed up,' he mentally ejaculated, "'as Cuppin's charge gave an unusually loud scream, "'his lungs might be a fortune to me, Lord.' "'He continued, waxing metaphysical,' I don't look upon that infant as an infant. I looks upon him as a voice. The voice was a very powerful one just at this moment, for in an interval of affectionate weakness, Cuppins had regaled the foundling on the rind of Mr. Peters' rashers, which, not harmonizing with the limited development of his swallowing apparatus, had brought out the purple tints in his complexion with alarming violence. For a long time Mr. Peters mused, And at last, after signaling Cuppins, as was his wont on commencing a conversation, with a loud snap of his finger and thumb, he began thus. "'There's a case of shoplifting at Halford Heath, and I've got to go over and look up some evidence in the village. I'll tell you what I'll do with you. I'll take you and Baby over in Vorkin's trap. He said as how he'd lend it to me whenever I liked to ask him for the loan of it.' And I'll stand treat to the rosebush tea gardens.' Never had the dirty alphabet fashioned such sweet words-a drive in Mr. Vorkin's trap and the rosebush tea gardens. If Cuppins had been a fairy changeling and had awoke one morning to find herself a queen, I don't think she would have chosen any higher delight wherewith to celebrate her ascension to the throne. "'Cuppins had, during the few months of Mr. Peters' residence "'in the indoor Eden of No. 5 Little Gulliver Street, "'won a very high place in that gentleman's regards. "'The elderly proprietress of the Eden "'was as nothing in the eyes of Mr. Peters "'when compared with Cuppins. "'It was Cuppins whom he consulted "'when giving his orders for dinner. "'Cuppins, whose finger was as the finger of fate "'in the matter of hard or soft roed herrings.' It was by Cuppin's advice he purchased some mysterious garment for the baby, or some prodigious wonder in the shape of a bandana or a neck-handkerchief for himself. And this tea-garden treat he had long contemplated as a fitting reward for the fidelity of his handmaiden. Mr. Vorkins was one of the officials of the police force, and Mr. Vorkins' trap was a happy combination of the card of a vendor of feline provisions and the gig of a fast young man of half a century gone by. That is to say, it partook of the disadvantages of each, without possessing the capabilities of either. But Mr. Peters looked at it with respect, and in the eye of Cuppins it was a gorgeous and fashionable vehicle, which the most distinguished member of the peerage might have driven along the Lady's mile at six o'clock on a midsummer afternoon with pride and delight. At two o'clock on this June afternoon, behold Mr. Vorkin's trap at the door of Number 5 Little Gulliver Street, with Cuppins in a miraculous bonnet and Baby in a wonderful hat seated therein. Mr. Peters, standing on the pavement, contemplated the appointments of the equipage with some sense of pride, and the juvenile population of the street hovered around, absorbed in admiration of the turnout. "'Mind your bonnet. Don't make the vehicle top-heavy, Miss,' said one youthful rotary of the renowned Joe Miller. "'It's big enough, anyways.' "'Miss Cuppins,' she was Miss Cuppins in her Sunday costume, flung a glance at the young barbarian and drew down a green veil, which, next to the foundling, was the pride of her heart. Mr. Peters, armed with a formidable whip, mounted to a seat by her side, and away drove the trap, Leaving the juvenile population, aforesaid, venting its envy in the explosion of a perfect artillery of jeu de mots. Mr Vorkin's trap was as a fairy vehicle to Cuppins, and Mr. Vorkin's elderly pony an enchanted quadruped, under the strokes of whose winged hooves Slopperton flew away like a smoky dream, and was no more seen. An enchanted quadruped, by whose means the Slopperton suburbs of unfinished houses. Scaffolding, barren ground for sale in building lots, ugly lean streets, an inky river, all melted into the distance, giving place to a road that intersected a broad heath in the undulations of which lay fairy pools of blue water, in whose crystal depths the good people might have admired their tiny beauties as in a mirror. Indeed, it was pleasant to ride in Mr. Vorkin's jingling trap through the pure country air, scented with the odors of distant beanfields, and looking back, to see the smoke of Sloppertonian chimneys, a mere black daub on the blue sky, and to be led almost to wonder how, on the face of such a fair and lovely earth, so dark a blot as Slopperton could be. The Rosebush tea gardens were a favorite resort of Slopperton on a Sunday afternoon, and many teachers there were in that great city who did not hesitate to say that the rose-bushes of those gardens were shrubs planted by his satanic majesty, and that the winding road over Halford Heath, though to the ignorant eye, bordered by bright blue streams and sweet-smelling wildflowers, lay in reality between two lakes of fire and brimstone, some gentlemen, however, dare to say, gentlemen who wore white neck-cloths, too, and were familiar and welcome in the dwellings of the poor, that Slopperton might go to more wicked places than rosebush gardens, and might possibly be led into more evil courses than the consumption of tea and watercresses at nine pence a head. But in spite of all differences of opinion, the rosebush gardens prospered, "'and rosebush tea and bread and butter were pleasant. "'Mr. Peters deposited his fair young companion "'with the baby in her arms at the gate of the gardens, "'after having authorized her to order two teas "'and to choose an arbor, "'and walked off himself into the village of Halford "'to transact his official business. "'The ordering of the teas and the choosing of the arbor "'were a labor of love with the fair cuppins. "'She selected a rustic retreat,' over which the luxuriant tendrils of a hop-vine fell like a thick green curtain. It was a sight to see cuppins skirmishing with the earwigs and spiders in their sylvan bower, and ultimately rooting those insects from the nests of their fathers. Mr. Peters returned from the village in about an hour, hot and dusty, but triumphant as to the issue of the business he had come about, and with thirst for tea at nine pence a head. I don't know whether Rosebush Gardens made much out of the two teas at ninepence, but I know the bread and butter and watercresses disappeared by the aid of the detective and his fair companion, as if by magic. It was pleasant to watch the foundling during this humble fete. He had been brought up by hand, which would be better expressed as by spoon, from pap to beefsteaks and onions and the soft rows of red herrings to say nothing of sugar-sticks, bacon-rinds, and the claws of shellfish. He therefore, immediately upon the appearance of the two teas, laid violent hands on a bunch of water and a slice of bread and butter, wiping the butter-side upon his face, so as to give himself the appearance of an infant in a violent perspiration, preparatory to its leisurely consumption. He also made an onslaught of Mr. Peter's cup of steaming tea, but scalding his hands therewith withdrew to the bosom of cuppins and gave vent to his indignation in loud screams which the detective said made the gardens quite lively after the two teas mr peters attended by cuppins and the infant strolled round the gardens and peered into the arbours very few of which were tenanted this weekday afternoon the detective indulged in a gambling speculation with some wonderful machine the distinguishing features of which were numbers and Barcelona nuts, and by the aid of which you might lose as much as 3 pence half penny before you knew where you were, while you could not by any possibility win anything. There is also a bowling-green and a swing, which Cuppins essayed to mount, and which repudiated that young lady by precipitating her forward on her face at the first start. Having exhausted the mild dissipations of the gardens, Mr. Peters and Cuppin's returned to their bower, where the gentleman sat smoking his clay pipe and contemplating the infant with a perfect serenity and calm enjoyment delightful to witness. But there is more on Mr. Peters' mind that summer's evening than the infant. He was thinking of the trial of Richard Marwood and the part he had taken in that trial by means of the dirty alphabet. He was thinking, perhaps, of the fate of Richard, poor unlucky Richard, a hopeless and incurable lunatic, imprisoned for life in a dreary asylum, and comforting himself in that wretched place by wild fancies of imaginary greatness. Presently, Mr. Peters, with a preparatory snap of his fingers, asks Cuppins if she can call to mind that their story of the lion and the mouse. Cuppins can call it to mind, and proceeds to narrate with volubility "'How a lion, once having rendered a service to a mouse, "'found himself caught in a great net and in need of a friend. "'How this insignificant mouse had, by sheer industry and perseverance, effected the escape of the mighty lion. "'Whether they lived happily ever afterwards, Cuppens couldn't say. "'But had no doubt they did, "'that being the legitimate conclusion of every legend in this young lady's opinion.' Mr. Peters scratched his head violently during this story, to which he listened with his mouth very much around the corner, and when it was finished he fell into a reverie that lasted till the distant slopperton clocks chimed the quarter before eight, at which time he laid down his pipe and departed to prepare Mr. Vorkin's trap for the journey home. Perhaps of the two journeys, the journey home was almost the more pleasant It seemed to Cuppin's young imagination as if Mr. Peters was bent on driving Mr. Vorkin's trap straight into the sinking sun, which was going down in a sea of crimson behind a ridge of purple heath. Slopperton was yet invisible, except as a dark cloud on the purple sky. This road across the heath was very lonely on every evening except Sunday, and the little party only met one group of haymakers returning from their work, "'and one stout farmer's wife, laden with groceries, "'hastening home from Slopperton. "'It was a still evening, "'and not a sound rose upon the clear air, "'except the last song of a bird "'or the chirping of a grasshopper. "'Perhaps if Cuppins had been with anybody else, "'she might have been frightened, "'for Cuppins had a confused idea "'that such appearances as highwaymen "'and ghosts are common to the Vesper hour.' but in the company of Mr. Peters, Cuppins would have fearlessly met a regiment of highwaymen, or a churchyard full of ghosts. For was he not the law and the police in person, under whose shadow there could be no fear? Mr. Vorkin's trap was fast gaining on the sinking sun, when Mr. Peters drew up, and paused between two roads. These diverging roads met at a point a little further on, and the Sunday afternoon pleasure-seekers crossing the heath took sometimes one, sometimes the other. But the road to the left was the least frequented, being the narrower and more hilly, and this road Mr. Peters took, still driving towards the dark line behind which the red sun was going down. The broken ground of the heath was well aglow with the warm crimson light. A dissipated skylark and an early nightingale were singing a duet, to which the grasshoppers seemed to listen with suspended chirpings a frog of an apparently fretful disposition, was keeping up a croak, and beyond these voices there seemed to be no sound beneath the sky. The peaceful landscape and the tranquil evening shed a benign influence upon Cuppins and awakened the dormant poetry in that young lady's breast. "'Lord, Mr. Peters,' she said, "'it's hard to think in such a place as this "'that gents of your profession should be wanted.' I do think now, if I was ever led to feel to want to take and murder somebody, which I hopes ain't likely, knowing my duty to my neighbor better, I do think somehow this evening would come back to my mind, and I should hear them birds singing, and see that their sun's sinking, till I shouldn't be able to do it somehow. Mr. Peters shakes his head dubiously. He is a benevolent man and a philanthropist. But he doesn't like his profession run down, and a murder and bread and cheese are inseparable things in his mind. "'And do you know,' continued Cuppins, "'it seems to me as if, when this world is so beautiful and quiet, "'it's quite hard to think there's one wicked person in it "'to cast a shadow on its peace.' "'As Cuppins said this, she and Mr. Peters were startled by a shadow "'which came between them and the sinking sun,' "'a distorted shadow thrown across the narrow road "'from the sharp outline of the figure of a man "'lying upon a hillock a little way above them. "'Now, there is not much to alarm the most timid person "'in the sight of a man asleep upon a summer's evening "'among heath and wild flowers. "'But something in this man's appearance startled Cuppins, "'who drew nearer to Mr. Peters and held the foundling, "'now fast asleep and muffled in a shawl, "'closer to her bosom. "'The man was lying on his back, "'with his face upturned to the evening sky "'and his arms straight down at his sides. "'The sound of the wheels of Mr. Vorkin's trap "'did not awaken him, "'and even when Mr. Peters drew up with a sudden jerk, "'the sleeping man did not raise his head. "'Now, I don't know why Mr. Peters should stop, "'or why either he or Cuppin's "'should feel any curiosity about this sleeping man. "'But they certainly did feel considerable curiosity. "'He was dressed rather shabbily, but still like a gentleman. "'And it was perhaps a strange thing "'for a gentleman to be sleeping so soundly "'in such a lonely spot as this. "'Then again, there was something in his attitude, "'a want of ease, a certain stiffness, "'which had a strange effect upon both Cuppins and Mr. Peters.' "'I wish he'd move,' said Cuppins. "'He looked so awful quiet, lying there all so lonesome. "'Call to him, my girl,' said Mr. Peters with his fingers. "'Cuppins essayed a loud hello, but it was a dismal failure, "'on which Mr. Peters gave a long, shrill whistle, "'which must surely have disturbed the peaceful dreams of the seven sleepers, "'though it might not have awakened them. "'The man on the hillock never stirred, The pony, taking advantage of the halt, drew nearer to the heath and began to crop the short grass by the roadside, thus bringing Mr. Vorkin's trap a little nearer the sleeper. "'Get down, lass,' said the fingers of the detective. "'Get down, my lass, and have a look at him, for I can't leave this here pony.'" Cuppins looked at Mr. Peters, and Mr. Peters looked at Cuppins, as much as to say, "'Well, what, then?' "'So Cuppins,' "'surrendered the infant to his care, "'and descended from the trap, "'mounted the hillock, "'and looked at the still reclining figure. "'She did not look long, "'but returning rapidly to Mr. Peters, "'took hold of his arm and said, "'I don't think he's asleep leastways. "'His eyes is open, "'but he don't look as if he could see anything somehow. "'He's got a little bottle in his hand. "'Why cuppin should keep so tight a hold "'on Mr. Peters' arm while she said this, It is difficult to tell, but she did clutch his coat sleeve very tightly, looking back while she spoke with her white face turned towards that whiter face under the evening sky. Mr. Peters jumped quickly from the trap, tied the elderly pony to a bush, mounted the hillock, and proceeded to inspect the sleeping figure. The pale set face and the fixed blue eyes looked up at the crimson light melting into the purple shadows of the evening sky, but never more would earthly sunlight or shadow or night or morning or storm or calm be of any account to that quiet figure lying on the heath. Why the man was there or how he had come there was a part of the great mystery under the darkness of which he lay, and that mystery was death. He had died apparently by poison administered by his own hand, for on the grass by his side there was a little empty bottle labeled opium "'on which his fingers lay, not clasping it, "'but lying as if they had fallen over it. "'His clothes were soaked through with wet, "'so that he must in all probability "'have lain in that place through the storm of the previous night. "'A silver watch was in the pocket of his waistcoat, "'which Mr. Peters found on looking at it "'to have stopped at ten o'clock, ten o'clock of the night before, most likely. "'His hat had fallen off, and lay at a little distance.' and his curling light hair hung in wet ringlets over his high forehead. His face was handsome, the features well chiseled, but the cheeks were sunken and hollow, making the large blue eyes seem larger. Mr. Peters, in examining the pockets of the suicide, found no clue to his identity. A handkerchief, a little silver, a few halfpence, a penknife wrapped in a leaf torn out of a Latin grammar were the sole contents. The detective reflected for a few moments, with his mouth on one side, and then, mounting the highest hillock near, looked over the surrounding country. He presently descried a group of haymakers at a little distance, whom he signaled with a loud whistle. To them, through Cuppins as interpreter, he gave his directions, and two of the tallest and strongest of the men took the body by the head and feet and carried it between them, "'with Cuppins' shawl spread over the still white face. "'They were two miles from Slopperton, "'and those two miles were by no means pleasant to Cuppins, "'seated in Mr. Vorkin's trap, "'which Mr. Peters drove slowly, "'so as to keep pace with the two men and their ghastly burden. "'Cuppins' shawl, which of course would never be any use as a shawl again, "'was no good to conceal the sharp outline of the face it covered. "'For Cuppins had seen those blue eyes.' and once to see was always to see them as she thought. The dreary journey came at last to a dreary end at the police office, where the men deposited their dreadful load and, paid for their trouble, departed rejoicing. Mr. Peters was busy enough for the next half hour giving account of the finding of the body and issuing handbills of found dead, etc. Cuppins and the foundling returned to Little Gulliver Street, and if ever there had been a heroine in that street... That heroine was Cuppin's. People came from three streets off to see her and to hear the story, which she told so often that she came at last to tell it mechanically and to render it slightly obscure by the vagueness of her punctuation. Anything in the way of supper that Cuppin's would accept and two or three dozen suppers if Cuppin's would condescend to partake of them were at Cuppin's service and her reign as heroine-in-chief of this dark romance in real life was only put an end to, by the appearance of Mr. Peters, the hero, who came home by and by, hot and dusty, to announce to the world of Little Gulliver Street, by means of the alphabet, very grimy after his exertions, that the dead man had been recognized as the principal usher of a great school up at the other end of the town, and that his name was, or had been, Jabez North, His motive for committing suicide he had carried a secret with him into the dark and mysterious region to which he was a voluntary traveller. And Mr. Peters, whose business it was to pry about the confines of this shadowy land, though powerless to penetrate the interior, could only discover some faint rumour of an ambitious love for his master's daughter as being the cause of the young usher's untimely end what secrets this dead man had carried with him into the shadow land, who shall say? There might be one, perhaps, which even Mr. Peters, with his utmost acuteness, could not discover. Chapter 7. The Usher Resigns His Situation On the very day on which Mr. Peters treated Cuppins and the foundling to tea and watercresses, Dr. Tappenden and Jane, his daughter, "'returned to their household at Slopperton. "'Who shall describe the ceremony and bustle "'with which that great dignitary, "'the master of the house, was received? "'He had announced his return by the train, "'which reached Slopperton at seven o'clock. "'So at that hour a well-furnished tea-table "'was ready laid in the study, "'that terrible apartment which little boys entered "'with red eyes and pale cheeks, "'emerging therefrom in a pleasant glow,' "'engendered by a specific peculiar to schoolmasters "'whose desire it is not to spoil the child. "'But no ghosts of bygone canings, "'no infantine whimpers from shadowland, "'though little Ala Campan, dead and gone, "'had received correction in this very room, "'haunted the doctor's sanctorum, "'a cheerful apartment, warm in winter and cool in summer, "'and handsomely furnished at all times.' The silver teapot reflected the evening sunshine and reflected to Sarah Jane laying the table none the handsomer for being represented upside down with a tendency to become collapsed or elongated as she hovered about the tea tray. Anchovy paste, pound cake, scotch marmalade and fancy bread all seemed to cry aloud for the arrival of the doctor and his daughter to demolish them. But for all that, There was fear in the hearts of the household as the hour for that arrival drew near. What would he say to the absence of his factotum? Who should tell him? Everyone was innocent enough, certainly. But in the first moment of his fury might not the descending avalanche of the doctor's wrath crush the innocent? Miss Smithers, who, as well as being presiding divinity of the young gentleman's wardrobes, was keeper of the keys of divers' presses and cupboards, and had sundry awful truss connected with tea and sugar and butcher's bills, was elected by the whole household, from the cook to the knife-boy, as the proper person to make the awful announcement of the unaccountable disappearance of Mr. Jabez North. So when the doctor and his daughter had alighted from the fly which brought them and their luggage from the station... Miss Smithers hovered timidly about them, on the watch for a propitious moment. Have you enjoyed yourself, Miss? Judging by your looks, I should say very much indeed, for never did I see you looking better, said Miss Smithers, with more enthusiasm than punctuation, as she removed the shawl from the lovely shoulders of Miss Tappenden. Thank you, Smithers. I am better, replied the young lady. Miss Tappenden, on the strength of never having anything the matter with her, was always complaining, and passed her existence in taking red lavender and reading three volumes a day from the circulating library. "'And how?' asked the ponderous voice of the ponderous doctor. "'How is everything going on, Smithers?' By this time they were seated at the tea-table, and the learned Tappenden was in the act of putting five lumps of sugar in his cup— "'while the fair Smithers lingered in attendance. "'Quite satisfactory, sir, I'm sure,' replied that young lady, "'growing very much confused. "'Everything quite satisfactory, sir. Leastways—' "'What do you mean by leastways, Smithers?' asked the doctor impatiently. "'In the first place it is in English, "'and in the next it sounds as if it meant something unpleasant. "'For goodness' sake, Smithers, be straightforward and businesslike,' Has anything gone wrong? What is it? And why wasn't I informed of it? Smithers, in despair at her incapability of answering these three questions at once, as no doubt she ought to have been able to do, or the doctor would not have asked them, stammered out, Mr. North, sir. Mr. North, sir? Well, what of Mr. North, sir? By the by, where is Mr. North? Why isn't he here to receive us? Smithers feels that she's in for it, so after two or three nervous gulps and other convulsive movements of the throat, she continues thus. "'Mr. North, sir, didn't come home last night, sir. "'We sat up for him till one o'clock this morning, last night, sir.' The rising storm in the doctor's face is making Smithers' English more un-English every moment. "'Didn't come home last night?' "'didn't return to my house at the hour of ten, "'which hour has been appointed by me "'for the retiring to rest of every person in my employment,' "'cried the doctor, aghast. "'No, sir, nor yet this morning, sir, "'nor yet this afternoon, sir. "'And the West Indian pupils "'have been looking out of the window, sir, "'and would, which we told them not till we were hoarse, sir. "'The person entrusted by me with the care of my pupils,' "'abandoning his post, and my pupils looking out of the window,' "'exclaimed Dr. Tappenden, in the tone of a man who says, "'The glory of England has departed. "'You wouldn't perhaps believe it, but it has.' "'We didn't know what to do, sir, "'and so we thought we'd better not do it,' "'continued the bewildered Smithers. "'And we thought as you was coming back today, "'we'd better leave it till you did come back. "'And please, sir, will you take any new-laid eggs?' Eggs," said the doctor. "New laid eggs. Go away, Smithers. There must be some steps taken immediately. That young man who is my right hand, and I would have trusted him with untold gold, or," he added, "with my checkbook." As he uttered the words "checkbook," he, as it were, instinctively laid his hand upon the pocket which contained that precious volume. But as he did so. He remembered that he had used the last leaf, but one when writing a check for a midsummer butcher's bill, and that he had a fresh book in his desk untouched. This desk was always kept in the study, and the doctor gave an involuntary glance in the direction in which it stood. It was a very handsome piece of furniture, ponderous, like the doctor himself. A magnificent construction of shining walnut wood and dark green morocco with a recess for the doctor's knees and on either side of this recess two rows of drawers with brass handles and Brahma locks. The center drawer on the left-hand side contained an inner and secret drawer and towards the lock of this drawer the doctor looked for this contained his new checkbook. The walnut wood round the lock of the center drawer seemed a little chipped. The doctor thought he might as well get up and look at it and a near examination showed the brass handle to be slightly twisted, as if a powerful hand had wrenched it out of shape. The doctor, taking hold of the handle to pull it straight, drew the drawer out and scattered its contents upon the floor. Also the contents of the inner drawer, and amongst them the checkbook, half a dozen leaves of which had been torn out. So, said the doctor, this man whom I trusted... "'has broken open my desk, and finding no money, "'has taken blank checks in the hope of being able to forge my name. "'To think that I did not know this man. "'To think that you did not, doctor. "'To think, too, that you do not even now, perhaps, know half this man may have been capable of. "'But it was a time for action, not reflection.' So the doctor hurried to the railway station and telegraphed to his bankers in London to stop any checks presented in his signature and to have the person presenting such checks immediately arrested. From the railway station he hurried in an undignified perspiration to the police office to institute a search for the missing Jabez, and then returned home, striking terror into the hearts of his household. ay even to the soul of his daughter the lovely Jane, who took an extra dose of sal Volatile and went to bed to read Lady Clorinda or The Heartbreaks of Belgravia. With the deepening twilight came a telegraphic message from the bank to say that checks for divers sums had been presented and cashed by different people in the course of the day. On the heels of this message came another from the police station announcing that a body had been found upon Halford Heath, answering to the description of the missing man. The bewildered schoolmaster, hastening to the station, recognizes at a glance the features of his late assistant. The contents of the dead man's pocket, the empty bottle with the too significant label are shown him. No, some other hand than the ushers must have broken open the desk in the study, and the unfortunate young man's reputation had been involved in a strange coincidence, "'but the motive for his rash act. "'That is explained by a most affecting letter "'in the dead man's hand, which is found in his desk. "'It is addressed to the doctor, "'expresses heartfelt gratitude "'for that worthy gentleman's past kindnesses, "'and hints darkly at a hopeless attachment to his daughter, "'which renders the writer's existence "'a burden too heavy for him to bear. "'For the rest, Jabez North has passed a threshold,' "'over which the boldest and most inquisitive "'scarcely care to follow him. "'So he takes his own little mystery with him "'into the land of the great mystery. "'There is, of course, an inquest "'at which two different chemists "'who sold laudanum to Jabez North "'on the night before his disappearance "'give their evidence. "'There is another chemist, "'having sold him a day or two before "'a bottle of patent hair dye, "'which is also a poisonous compound.' but surely he never could have thought of poisoning himself with hair dye. The London police are at fault in tracing the presenters of the checks, and the proprietors of the bank, or the clerks, who maintain a common fund to provide against their own errors, are likely to be considerable losers. In the mean, while the worthy doctor announces, by advertisements in the Slopperton papers, that his pupils assemble on the 27th of July.